Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arnie. This week, are we on the verge of being able to print a new kidney or liver? And will every home soon have a machine in it to make medicine so we don't need to head off to the chemist for a dose of antibiotics? This is the world of 3D printing, and we'll show you what it promises to deliver. Plus, in the news this week, is fracking contaminating underground water, or is it just down to leaky pipes, and a new breakthrough therapy for multiple sclerosis? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Also known as hydraulic fracturing, fracking is a way to recover natural gas from deposits deep underground. Fluids at very high pressures are pumped down into a borehole into gas-rich rocks below. The force of the fluid fractures the rock, releasing pockets of gas which are tapped off. But many are concerned about the environmental impact of the process, with some people even claiming to be able to set fire to their drinking water, which is becoming contaminated with escaping methane. Now, a new study from scientists in America has shown that the contamination is caused by leaks from faulty casings lining the boreholes rather than rising up from the fractured rock itself. Science writer Mark Peplow has been looking at the story. The point is, this means that the fracking process isn't to blame for any methane contamination. It's the result of poor workmanship at the borehole. And now that borehole is lined with steel and concrete to stop the gas escaping as it rises through the pipe. Now, the key thing is that suggests that it should be possible to eliminate the leakage by simply doing a proper job. What it does highlight is that you need really strong regulations to ensure that the wells are constructed properly. How did they do this sort of methane post-mortem? Oh, it's absolutely fantastic. They used a really clever bit of chemical analysis to work out where the methane in their samples had come from. So the first step is to look at the ratio of methane and ethane in the water to see if it matches the gas in the shale. So ethane and methane are both found underground, are they? Yes, they are. Natural gas that comes through your cooker is methane, but in gas deposits you tend to get some heavier hydrocarbons as well, which are still gases, such as ethane. And what you do is just you just see if it matches up. But the trouble is those ratios can be altered by microbes or by chemical reactions with oxygen. So you need another way of looking at this. So they looked at the ratios of gases like helium and neon and argon. Now, these are noble gases, so-called, because they're very unreactive, so they're not altered by biological or chemical processes. So each shale region has a characteristic makeup of all these gases. It's a chemical fingerprint. Crucially, that fingerprint does change in a predictable way at various stages of the process as the gas is dissolved in fracking fluid, as it moves through the borehole and as it gets into aquifers. So you look at these fingerprints and you can effectively map out where the gas has flowed before it got into the water wells. And they looked at 130 wells in Pennsylvania and Texas and found eight clusters of wells near shale gas sites where there had been leakage through the borehole casing, but not directly from the fracked shale beneath. Good grief. So you can actually tell at what point in the underground journey the gas is taking, it has exited from the fracking operation and actually got into the groundwater supply. Yeah, that's right. That's pretty impressive. That obviously now fingers that particular bit of engineering. So, A, is there a blame attached to this now? Are we looking at legal cases? And B, can this be remedied or rectified now the fracking operations in those places are in situ? Funnily enough, there there is a legal case ongoing in Texas that this might have some impact on. In terms of rectifying it, yes, they can be rectified. But obviously, what needs to be done is to have the proper regulations in place to make sure that this is done properly in the first instance. Would the regulations in place here in Britain have stopped that sort of poor infrastructure being used, which is causing this problem in America? I think that's impossible to know. Certainly advocates for fracking say that, oh, of course, nothing like that would ever happen over here. It's very difficult to know because things are moving more slowly over here than they did do in the US. And because there's such a focus of public attention on the issue, I suspect that any regulator would be down on dodgy operators like a ton of bricks. So in a sense, the public furore about it may actually help to ensure that if fracking does move forward, regulators keep a very careful eye on it to make sure that these wells are created in in the right way. And worst case scenario, so it does happen, the presence of methane and a bit of ethane in people's water 
does it pose a threat to people? Probably not, but there really isn't enough literature yet out there to know for sure. And of course, it's something that naturally concerns people. And when you're losing methane out of your well, it's actually a major problem if it's escaping into the atmosphere. There's been a lot of talk actually about how shale gas is a good thing for tackling climate change because it it burns cleaner than coal it doesn't produce as much carbon dioxide emissions but if you're allowing methane to leak from your well methane is a much much more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide so if you've got a leaky shale gas operation that could actually be worse in terms of climate change than burning coal mark peplow discussing work published this week in the journal pnas by duke university scientist thomas dara and his colleagues this is the naked scientist i'm chris smith and also here is kat arney and this week we're talking 3d printing coming up shortly a nanoparticle treatment breakthrough for multiple sclerosis but first into outer space after a decade-long journey the european space agency's rosetta probe has finally locked into orbit around the comet 67p churyumov gerasimenko which is currently more than 400 million kilometers away and if that journey wasn't impressive enough the rosetta team are now planning to actually land a probe called Philae on its surface. So I spoke to the Open University's Professor Ian Wright, whose Ptolemy experiment is on board the probe, to find out how you pick a perfect parking spot on a comet. Earlier in the year, we did a practice of this where we kind of took some data that we kind of imagined we might uh, get, and then uh, we sat around and and worked out how we would do it. And and the whole point of the practice was to find out what the limitations of the process were and, and so on and so forth. Of course, you can probably imagine that the shape model we were using at that point looks nothing like the body that it it turned out to be. So, you know, that has been a a surprise to us. So you didn't know what the comet actually looked like close up until you could get close enough to really photograph it? Uh, Absolutely right. I mean, we've been using a couple of different shape models that have been produced over the years but they're really kind of, you know, they're what you might call potato-shaped rather than this uh, rubber duck shape. So um, that has put some tremendously interesting constraints on the mission in terms of flight dynamics and all that jazz. But there are, there are two aspects, really, to um, selecting the landing site. I mean, we can look at the images and we can pore over those all day long and, and the scientists can say this area looks interesting, that one looks exciting and all that sort of stuff. But we have to factor in other aspects to this. Is the area even reachable, you know, with the orbital constraints that we've got? Um, We have to worry about illumination. We don't want too much and we don't want too little. Too much and we get too hot. Uh, Too little, we don't charge the solar panels up. And of course, at any one instant, we've got to be able to communicate from the lander back to the orbiter. And obviously, we want to land on something that's reasonably doable, so something that's reasonably flat, should we say, as opposed to uh, vertiginous. The whole thing here on will, is, is being controlled by the, you know, the, the mission engineers and so on. And if, for whatever reasons, the comet suddenly became violently active, you know, we may have to take uh, evasive action. When are you going to release the lander, or are you waiting for just the right moment? There will be absolutely a, a date and time when it's scheduled to happen. It is currently penciled in for November the 11th, but I think a a decision will be made towards the end of September to either clarify that or change it. There are just huge amounts of work to do from the mission dynamics point of view. Assuming that the lander does make it safely onto the surface of the comet, what sort of experiments is it going to be doing there? What's it looking for? There are about 10 experiments, 10 instruments on the lander. There are cameras, there's a drilling system, there's an instrument like my own, which is what is known as a gas chromatograph mass spectrometer. And to uh, explain that, it's a miniaturized analytical laboratory uh, where we will take in samples and heat them up and find out what comet's made out of. There are devices which will determine the physical properties of the surface, how hard it is, Uh, There's a microphone to listen to um, any dust particles raining down. There are various sensors in the feet to determine temperatures and so on and so forth. There's there's just a whole range of different instruments on there. It must be an incredible feeling to be involved in this because uh, I can remember looking up in the sky. There's been a couple of comets that uh, I think in my living memory that have been up and we've seen them. But then to think that there's actually, we've sent something up to a comet and we could now land on it. 
that's that's an incredible achievement to even get this far, isn't it? I've been working on this for over 20 years, and uh, I can't say I've been working on it full-time for 20 years, but um, it's never been far away over that period of time. So, yes, we're excited, but also this is the end of a very long, hard slog, and, uh, you know, we're looking forward, hopefully, to a, a successful outcome. I must admit, in my lifetime, I've looked up in the sky at uh, some fairly duff comets, um, uh, every comet of the century turns out to be not that interesting or not that exciting. So um, th this, is, uh, this is a different kind of reward, I think. That was Ian Wright from the Open University. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. And later in the show, we're going to be talking all about the amazing science, which is 3D printing. We'll even find out how you can print fruit. And we sent one of our people off to eat it. We'll find out how they got on later. A new treatment for the nerve condition multiple sclerosis, or MS, has been pioneered by a scientist at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge. The breakthrough has won Sue Metcalf the prestigious Merck-Sorono Prize, making her the first British scientist to earn the award. She plans to use the funding this brings with it to run a pre-clinical trial of her new therapy, which uses tiny dissolvable nanoparticles to deliver a repair molecule to damaged parts of the nervous system. The disease that we're working on is multiple sclerosis, and this is where the immune cells actually attack yourself, the brain and the spinal cord. All the treatments today are involving suppressing the immune response. These are the active cells that are attacking the nerve cells. But underneath this, there's also, once the nerves are damaged, they can't be repaired. How are you trying to tackle it with your work? We've prepared a natural repair factor that occurs in the body, but we've placed it inside a kind of magic bullet so we can target this factor to the damaged areas of the nerves. And the magic bullet then releases slowly the factor that's going to repair those nerves over a period of time. So it's going to help repair the nerve, and at the same time it's going to help reduce the immune response against the nerve. If we could look at each of those things in turn then, first of all, what is the, the repair factor? How does that work? This is a factor called LIF, or leukaemia inhibitory factor, which is a stem cell factor, and it's been discovered very recently that it does repair nerves. How does it work? It's not known, but we think it's stopping the inflammation that's associated with damage to the nerve and allows repair cells to actually go in and recreate the functional nerve. These stem cells are already in the brain or the part of the nervous system, but they're not necessarily switched on or functional to repair the damage. You're saying you put this factor in and not only does it damp down the inflammation, but it can also stimulate those stem cells to do a, a repair process. That's exactly the process, yes. And now tell us the other aspect of what you're describing, which is the magic bullet. You've got to deliver this lift factor in somehow. How are you doing that? We're placing the lift factor inside the same material that if anyone's had stitches for an operation, they have these soluble stitches which gradually dissolve. So we're using that same material but making the material extremely small so you get tiny, tiny particles and we have the factor embedded in the material on the outside, we can put a target molecule which will carry those tiny nanoparticles directly to the nerves that are damaged. How do you get the particles to where they're needed in the body? Do you have to inject them? To start with, we will be injecting them, but also we're able to take the particles through a nasal spray and they will cross over into the brain at the back of the nose. There's normally a barrier that protects the brain, but the one place there is no barrier is just behind the nose. And once they get into the brain, how do they know where to go? How do they know where the damage is occurring because of the MS? So they have to target that area, or do they just go everywhere? Essentially, they will flow into the brain, but they have a sticky molecule on the surface that will recognise the places that are damaged. And so they will then start to pile up on those damaged areas and release the factor lift. What is the sticky molecule that enables you to target 
these particles to the right place in the brain? We attach to the surface of the particles something called an antibody, which is specific for only certain cells in, in the brain, and these are the cells that can repair the damage. So you deliver the particle, either through the nasal spray or, or in the blood, the antibody on the surface enables them to home in to the right place in the nervous system where the inflammation and damage is occurring. They then ooze out this lift factor. Then what happens? Then the factor will act on those cells that are able to repair the nerves and cause them to switch on and start their repair. Have you got data in people that this works? No, we haven't done it yet in people. We've done it in, in mice and we show that it works. And will you now be taking this into a clinical trial to see if you can achieve the same effect in people? The funding award is to take this into pre-clinical trials, which we need to do before we can go into people, and that will take about uh, perhaps two years. Fantastic news, though, isn't it? That's Sue Metcalf from Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge. Now it's time to take a long, hard look in the mirror because this week scientists announced that human faces vary a lot more than other parts of our bodies or even the faces of animals. University of California Berkeley researcher Michael Sheehan used data collected by the US Army to see how our individual visages vary, as he explained to Georgia Mills. One of the things that I think is really striking about humans is as we look around at people, we notice that they're all really variable. And we use that variation to tell each other apart and to recognize who's who in our social interactions. And I think this is particularly interesting, especially when you compare humans to other animals that you see as you walk around, um, that, you know, we seem strikingly much more variable than a lot of the species we see. We also have really complex social interactions, which suggests that given that we use the variation for recognition, that maybe there's something about our social interactions that may have sort of driven our morphology to be much more recognizable. And so we we're interested in looking to see whether there was any evidence that our you know, social interactions and being recognizable may have shaped our, our faces over evolutionary time. What's really quite striking as well is that our faces are very variable, but the rest of our bodies aren't necessarily as strikingly variable necessarily. We used a U.S. Army database where they measured lots of different both facial and the rest of body morphology of service members from a wide range of ages and ethnicities. And when we do that for both men and women, in all cases we examined, faces were more variable, both in the sense that the traits on the face showed higher levels of variability, but also, and I think quite strikingly, the traits on the face are less correlated with each other. So essentially what that means is that even though tall people have long arms and long legs and sort of all the parts of their body are generally bigger, they don't necessarily have bigger facial traits. And so it's not the case that individuals with large noses necessarily have widely spaced eyes. And the fact that you can mix and match, you know, different sizes of facial traits together gives a huge range of combinatorial variation that ends up making people very unique looking. Why is there so much variation across our faces and not amongst our other body parts? The sort of hypothesis we were working with is that in the case of humans, we use faces as one of the main things we use to recognize individuals. So I think, you know, from anyone's own experience in life, you know that being able to recognize who you're interacting with is really important. And so the idea in this case that we are arguing is that there may have been some selection on facial traits to be more recognizable, given that that is the trait that we happen to use for recognition. So how does having a recognizable face actually help you? The really basic idea is that in many situations, it can be costly to be confused with other individuals. It could be that you get some aggression or punishment that's actually meant for someone else, but because you look like them, it ends up going to you. The other reason that it could be costly to be confused with other individuals is that if you did something really great, you want to get all the rewards or the benefits of doing that. But if someone else looks like you, they may in fact get you know, whatever prize or reward that you may have gotten. In sort of an evolutionary sense, you can imagine that if you know, you're sort of the hotshot, that maybe there is, um, you know, you're going to get some resource that someone else wouldn't get or a mating or something like that. You could potentially lose out on if there's confusion about who actually did the, the great deed. Michael Sheehan speaking with Georgia Mills. And if you're still hungry for science news, then head over to our special editions to hear about a new report suggesting that rather than peaking at 9 billion people this century, the global population might turn out to be more than 12 billion. You can hear the author of the study, Adrian Raftree, talking about the implications on our special editions podcast on iTunes or at nakedscientist.com slash specials. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and also with Kat Arney.
Now, on to our main topic for the week, which is the world of additive manufacturing, or, as it's better known, 3D printing. This is where, rather than ink being used, mixtures of substances, including even metals, can be precision deposited in a series of layers which build up to make a three-dimensional object. And it's not just small things that can be printed. The Strati, the world's first 3D-printed car, has just been unveiled. There are now companies working on producing houses this way. And in the last week, NASA launched the first ever 3D printer into space. So the sky does literally seem to be the limit for this technology. Later, we will be finding out about the possibility of 3D printing replacement human organs and even 3D printed fruit. But first, to help us take a closer look at 3D printing and how it could change our lives and the world of manufacturing, we're joined by Tim Minchell from Cambridge University's Institute of Manufacturing. Hi, Tim. Hi. So tell me a little bit about where 3D printing technologies come from and how does it actually work? What is it? As Chris was saying, this is an additive process. The alternative ones are subtractive and formative. So we have a block of wood and you take stuff off it. Formative is when you have a piece of material and you squish it into the right shape. But 3D printing or additive manufacturing literally is additive. You start off with nothing and you build something up layer by layer. And perhaps a way of thinking about this is to remember back to primary school when you first did pottery. You were maybe given some a blob of clay and told, you know, make something. And the way you did it was you got little bits of the clay and you rolled it out into a little worm shape and you joined the ends up and you put a circle down and then you did the same again and you built up a little cup or a little vase which you proudly took home. So that's an additive layer process. And that's what 3D printing basically is. And it's got two broad types, one when you're working in a liquid form and one where you're working in a powder form. So the liquid one is you're either squirting something out of a tube, a bit like a hot glue gun, and you build up the shape layer by layer that way. Or you start off with a, a vat of liquid and you use an ultraviolet laser to selectively make it go solid in the places you want layer by layer. The alternative way is using powders, so metal powders, ceramic powders, plastic powders... And a way to think of that one is, imagine if I poured dry sand onto the table and then squirted some glue into a circle shape and then blew the dry sand away, you'd be left with a, a layer of a solid object. If you put more sand down, more glue on top of that, and blew the sand away again, you'd slowly build up the object. People may be most familiar with some of the 3D printers that are coming into our homes that use various types of plastics and things like that. And we've had a tweet from our listener, Simon Archer, who says, what kinds of materials can we do 3D printing with? So the main materials are plastics, but also ceramics and metals can be used. And a particularly interesting area is when you have multiple materials. We've had a tweet from our listener, Ed Wilson, and he says, are multi-material structures possible? So how, how can you do more than one type of material in a printer? Oh, this is it's very clever, this. So the idea is that you'd have conductive metal track inside a piece of material being produced in plastics. You'd have to have multiple nozzles at work there and some very clever, very challenging technological barriers need to be overcome there. But the dream is you could then print things such as a component for an aircraft with strain sensors built into it. You could have electrical conductors built into objects that are made out of plastic, but we're a little way off that at the moment. And some of the things you hear about, they seem like the rep Applicator from Star Trek, where you just put it in and like, bingo, here's Sunday lunch. Um, but where are in a more realistic, you know, perhaps now or in the very near future, what are some of the main applications of 3D printing technology? Where are they going? Well, maybe just to give it a, a tiny bit of background. So it's gone through broadly three phases. We started off making models and prototypes, and that's still a big part of 3D printing. So you make a replica of the thing you want. Uh, if you're making a, a new phone or a new drill or something, you, you make it as a model to see what it would look like before making it in a normal way. Then we moved on to making moulds. So at the moment, if you want to make your Lego bricks or mobile phone plastic case, you'd make a mould and then make lots and lots of identical uh, models, uh, versions of it using plastic. The cost of those moulds is very, very high in the process of making them quite slow. With 3D printing, you can actually print these moulds much cheaper and much faster. But the exciting bit, and I think this is where people have got really interested, is the fact that you can produce now the finished final part of the thing you want. And particular interesting areas there are in medicine, um, aerospace and automotive. And so, for example, just to, to give me a really quick example, I mean, we saw a recent story where a child had had a new vertebra printed. Is, is that a really growing area of these, these replacement prostheses? 
medicine really is does seem to be taking off, and there are three broad areas. One is replacing missing limbs, and some very exciting area is the low-cost area. And if anybody has a moment to go and look at websites where they talk about Project Daniel or RoboHand on YouTube, really interesting projects there. We also see uh, hearing aids being printed in this way that go in your ear. There's then implants, so surgeons actually producing replacement, for example, after a, a severe injury to the face. They can produce part of your face exactly as it was before. And then the third area of medicine is around actually producing a living part of the body. So it's either stuff you attach to the body, stuff you insert in the body, or stuff that's in the body to grow. Thank you very much, Tim Minshall from Cambridge University. Well, this seems like the perfect opportunity to introduce someone who is in Oxford, and that's Michael Molinari, and he's the director of the company OxyBio. And the role of your company, or your endeavour, Michael, is to try to print parts for bodies, but specifically printing tissues and possibly organs. Yes, and one of the ways that I like to think about it is, is that an organ is really like a, a three-dimensional town uh, and the cells are, are people uh, and they all live in houses supplied with, with all of the mod cons that they need to, to keep them happy. Uh, and at the same time, you've got a, a road network or, or blood vessels that are, are running around delivering groceries and, uh, and other nutrients to the cells and keeping them happy. Uh, and so when you compare that to printing a solid block of, of plastic or metal uh, that you might use for an aircraft part, it's a fantastically more complicated process. I can't sit here and say that that's something we're going to be able to deliver tomorrow and there are a lot of challenges that we need to address to get there, but it is a very exciting area. What can you deliver right now? We're at the moment concentrating on uh, printing sort of networks of cells that are encapsulated in droplets. One way of thinking about it is a three-dimensional network of bubble wrap and in each of those bubbles we have certain cells. We and the cells can dissolve away the bubble wrap and leave you with a functioning network of cells. So this would be for something like if someone needed a new kidney, you could design a way of depositing the bubble wrap with the appropriate kidney cells invested in the bubble wrap, build up a kidney with all the right cell types and the right tubes connected to the right places, dissolve away the bubble wrap and then you would potentially have something that could do the job of a kidney. Yes, the key word there is potentially and, and we are at a very early stage. The best estimates are that it will be 10 plus years away before we can uh, print, I think a human heart was the last estimate, or, or a piece of, of heart that you might be able to use in surgery. But that's certainly the, the long-term goal, is to be able to, to deliver that, to deliver an organ uh, or a part of an organ that could be, be used by surgeons. A couple of challenges here. I mean, one must be if we look at a part of the body, it's not just made of cells. There's the matrix, the things that support the cells there, there are blood vessels, nerves and so on, in the same way as a microchip has got wires and other things connecting it onto the motherboard, for example. So you have to overcome the problem not just of depositing this matrix and making the environment, the houses, nice, but you've then got to keep the people who are going to live in the houses, the cells, you've got to keep them happy as well, haven't you? So that's sort of two levels of complexity. It is, and one of the challenges at the moment is, is keeping the cells happy. And the approach that we're using of uh, delivering them effectively in bubble wrap is that we're protecting them through the printing process and, and keeping them happy. And one of the, the key elements to the process to understand is that, like people... Uh, cells over time make themselves comfortable and will actually produce matrix around themselves to make them happy. So they'll buy in their toaster and their, their footspar. And so it's a, a bit of an interplay between those two factors. So you need to keep them happy when you give them their new home and then allow them the time to develop all the structures and the matrix around them that's, that's going to allow them to function normally. My brain is just sort of generating images of your kidney sort of playing with its Xbox and popping the toaster down and bathing its feet in the foot spa. Won't ask what's actually in the foot spa, especially if it's a kidney. But um, the, the point is, where would you get the cells from? Would they come from the individual? So if I needed a kidney, is the idea here that you could take some of my stem cells and then turn them into kidney cells and then use those in your printing process to make me a, a biocompatible, genetically compatible organ? Potentially. The field is still at an early stage of development and so all of the focus at the moment is on coming up with the techniques that let us you know, deliver cells and, and keep them happy and, and make them function normally. One of the, the benefits potentially of, of this approach and, you know, to printing organs for the surgery is that you'd be able to have them off the shelf. Uh, and if you were taking cells from an individual patient and then printing them and, and growing them it would take time. So the long-term ideal goal would be if we could uh, use generic stem cells and print using them and, and literally have a, an organ off the shelf, 
it's a long way away and I think over the coming years as we address some of the, the basic challenges, um, you know, strategies to, to, to cover that will emerge. Fascinating stuff and uh, we wish you luck with it. Michael Molinari, he's from Oxy Bio in uh, Oxford. Cat. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and me, Kat Arney, and we're talking about 3D printing this week. Coming up, we pay a visit to a duo who have developed a way to 3D print fruit, but what does it taste like? Stay tuned to find out. Right now, as you're listening to this programme, there are, believe it or not, about one million people airborne above your head, and most of them have a jet engine to thank for being up there. These engines usually have a large fan at the front end that pushes air backwards, propelling the plane forwards. The blades of these fans are called aerofoils. They hook into a large rotating disc inside the engine. They're precision engineered to give them the very great strength and durability that they need to work reliably and safely. But this also makes them very expensive to manufacture and replace. Well, to help solve this problem, engineers at the UK company Rolls-Royce, who build about one-third of the world's jet engines, have come up with a solution that means they can use a technique similar to 3D printing to repair and strengthen worn fan blades. Now, I'd like to mention a tweet from our, our listener Rashmi Sidiwala, and he asked, what's the finest resolution for printing metals, and could we print aluminium? Well, maybe not quite that, but the engineers are using a laser to melt fine particles of metal into regions of the blade surfaces that are showing signs of wear or tear and they can vary the type of metal powder they use to suit the demands placed on the component they're repairing. Greer Jackson spoke to Rolls-Royce engineer Martin Rawson to hear how it works. So you could repair certainly aerofoils which are the rotating parts, the blades, the powders delivered to a point above the aerofoil surface where you want to deposit the material and then you uh, essentially use a laser beam to melt the powder as it arrives at that position, you can build those back up to their original shape so you've got the, the original blade profile. So why mm. would you use this method over melting something down and starting from scratch? One of the advantages of powder is that, of course, you can potentially take subtle difference in composition of powder and tailor them metallurgically to where they're most appropriate. So... You could also potentially in the rotating discs where you've got the the sort of the outer the rim of the disc which carries the blades is a lot hotter, for example, than the bore of the disc. So again, you could look at changing the composition. In the future, what sort of applications are we looking at? I was in the Aeromat conference a few years ago where certainly NASA were interested in the use of powders for either building structures in space or for... Uh, I guess, again, repairing components in space. They seem very interested in the technology, in order that the fact it was transportable, you could easily transport the powder, you could easily transport the machines. Uh, in terms of Rolls-Royce, so, uh, so prototype applications, development engines, I could see that things like 3D printing would have a real future in, in that sort of area. You know, if you look back, a number of years where we were using TIG welding techniques to actually build up components for, for prototypes, for development engines. That was a, a big benefit, considering that to actually obtain the, the casting from a traditional route would take something like 12 months. So I suppose your imagination is the limit on that one in terms of what you could do. It's amazing to think you can print with a 3D printer something as massive an engineering a challenge as a jet engine these days. Martin Rawson from Rolls-Royce, who was talking to Greer Jackson. As a general rule, materials that are also strong tend to be heavy. And in the case of an aeroplane, for example, more weight means more fuel being burned, and that means higher running costs. So California Institute of Technology scientist Julia Greer is using 3D printing-type technologies to produce new materials with shapes and structures that make them super strong, but also super light. And she joins us now. So can you tell us a little about this technology? What are you actually doing? What are you making here? So the technology that we're using is called two-photon lithography. It's a little bit like 3D printing, but it's able to generate features that are much smaller in size. So what we're doing is we're using this two-photon lithography process to write an open cell structures in a polymer. And then we coat these polymer scaffolds with a different material, and then we dissolve the initial polymer matrix. So in a way, it's a sacrificial scaffold that we get rid of at the end. And so the final structures are very, very lightweight. 
But because the wall thickness in these structures is at the nanometer level, we're able to also control its strength. And so we're able to make materials that are both really strong and really lightweight. I'm kind of imagining here almost a, you know, a lattice structure, maybe like the structure of the Eiffel Tower. And you, you make that in polymer and then you coat it with these tiny, tiny nanoparticles to build these very strong structures. Is that basically what you're doing? It's very close. You got it nearly, nearly right on. The only thing is that we don't coat it with nanoparticles. Instead, we coat it with a continuous conformal thin film. So imagine a two-dimensional nano ribbon, so to speak, and you wrap it around a three-dimensional architecture. And then you remove whatever was on the inside so that you build a hollow Eiffel Tower. So it's effectively an Eiffel Tower where each individual strut itself is a pipe. Now, we know for something like the Eiffel Tower, that's a a very light structure because it's full of holes, but it's also pretty strong. Um, What sort of things could you use these materials for? How strong are they? Well, you tell me. So imagine a brick made out of our nano trusses. So it sits on your hand. It looks like a brick. It smells like a brick. But if you drop it up in the air, it's going to fall slower than a feather. But at the same time, it's going to be just as strong as steel or a ceramic. So you can use these for building blocks where, for example, if you need to propel something up in space, you would really appreciate having the low weight, but at the same time, the material has to be strong enough to be able to withstand the pressure from the vacuum. So any kind of an application where you have to propel things up in the air or up into space or a bridge, for example, or or something where the weight is of essence, but the strength is still required, they would be really good for, as well as they're also damage tolerant. So it's very hard to tear them apart, for example, or to break it. So for any kind of a cushioning application um, where you need to protect a sensitive device, so as as a foam or as a wrapping paper, that, that would work really well too. So we've just heard from some people who are using this kind of printing technology to repair jet engines, but obviously jet planes are really, really heavy and an enormous amount of fuel is burnt just getting the jet across the Atlantic, regardless of the passengers and the payload. So could this technology, for example, make uh, air travel a a lot cheaper or certainly uh, use a lot less fuel? That is exactly right. So if we were to incorporate these nanotrusses in the skin of an airplane, even if we were to replace 50% of what is currently being used with these materials, I think we can benefit tremendously from the cost savings in fuel. So even a small reduction in the weight of the airplane would already facilitate a tremendous reduction in the price um, of the fuel that it takes to propel these very heavy machines through the air. So our materials right now, we can't fabricate them in, at lar- in large quantities, but if we could, make sheets of paper out of them. And our vision is that we would be able to effectively roll to roll print these like paper towels. We can use this for the airplane skin and wrap it around the airplane and thereby make the airplanes a lot lighter. One very neat thing about this technology is that these nanotrust materials can be made of just about any material that's available. So it could be a ceramic, it could be a metal, it could be a semiconductor. So for these high temperature applications, of course, in the jet engines, it's very hot we can use ceramics and they're generally very robust to high temperature. And so we can make these nearly hollow ceramics that are robust to high temperature and robust to mechanical damage and incorporate them as part of the jet engines. And thereby we would significantly reduce the weight of the airplane without having to sacrifice any other properties like the ability to withstand high temperatures and damage tolerance. That does sound absolutely fantastic. But how how close to reality is this? How soon do you think you could see these types of materials perhaps even becoming used in commercial applications? Oh, I think it's going to be within the next maybe year or two. We're actually very close to being able to uh, produce these in quantities. The major roadblock right now is writing the materials um, in that polymer, the, the writing of the polymer matrix. The step where you deposit a conformal coating, effectively the nano ribbon I was describing, of another material, a thin film of material, and then the subsequent removal of the initial polymer scaffold, those technologies already exist today. So they wouldn't be showstoppers at all. Um, It's the writing process. And the two-photon lithography itself is a relatively slow process. So we're working on developing a somewhat different technology that would enable us to quickly generate these patterns. And they don't have to be just as complex as long as we can do it quickly. So we're looking at other technologies and pairing up with several companies 
to try to identify what would make the most sense. But our vision is to try to roll-to-roll print them so that we can generate sheets of these materials, which can then possibly be laminated or somehow stacked together to make larger three-dimensional structures. It's a fantastic vision for the materials of the future. Thank you very much. That's Julia Greer from the California Institute of Technology. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, you can email Chris at The Naked Scientist or you can tweet at Naked Scientist or you can find us on our Facebook page. On the way, the people who can 3D print fruit will find out what it tastes like. Before that, though, why 3D printing is set to revolutionise the way we do chemistry and why it might even mean we end up printing our own medications at home. Lee Cronin is the Regis Professor of Chemistry at Glasgow University. I wanted to see if we could take a cheap robot, a bit like a 3D printer, and use it to automate chemistry. So one of the problems we have in chemistry is that only certain cooks can make certain recipes and get certain tastes. And what we wanted to do is make all recipes and all tastes available to everyone. By using a 3D printer, which is really cheap and becoming very available, we could use a 3D printer in two different ways. First way is that we use it to print a plastic object or a material object, in this case, like a test tube in which you do the chemistry. Then the 3D printer switches function and turns from test tube printing to actually moving liquids around, a bit like an automatic cocktail maker, in which it would add the chemicals into the test tube it's just made to allow the chemical reaction to go. And because the 3D printer would know which order to add the chemicals, it would be very precise and allow us to replicate our chemistry recipe and allow the thing to work in many different places and situations. And this would get around the fact that some cooks are better than others. It may not be perfectly replicated by another person, but a machine would follow those instructions to perfection time and time again. Exactly. So there are a number of features that come that if we could app chemistry into the software, we could beam chemistry around the world, we could overcome drug counterfeiting, and we could also make many, many drugs or molecules available than are available right now because you have to use big manufacturing facilities. In essence, it democratizes chemistry in a new way. Where would you see this having an application? The first thing that we're trying to look at here is trying to go for drug-like molecules or diagnostic systems where we can use them to treat and diagnose people's health issues. That seems to be a really compelling idea because one of the biggest problems in the world right now is having access to, uh, to medicine. And if we can allow the system to make different medicines, then say a person has a certain condition, but they know that the one particular drug doesn't really work for them, but, an, but another drug that's maybe rarer or not so available is better to treat them, then they could simply dial that up instead. And this allows us to personalise the medical process in a slightly different way. So you have a bit more choice. Do you see this having both a domestic and a commercial slash academic use? Because I can see how the same phenomenon would apply in my house. I mean, if I knew that I was going to need X dose of antibiotic, rather than go to the chemist, I could get a prescription from you, or, you know, say you're my doctor, and I would feed this into my machine and it would effectively, the prescription's like a license to produce a certain amount of a molecule for a certain period of time. I could have a home 3D printer that would make my antibiotics for me for the period of time for which I should be taking them. Yeah, exactly. Now, I mean, I think that's a very long-term view. What we want to do, first of all, is to use it as a research and development tool. One of the biggest problems we have is, in science is collaboration. We want to be able to take our recipes and perfect them anywhere in the world. So maybe in my lab, I discover a new molecule. I want to give it to some colleagues in Australia. It may take them two or three months to get the recipe right. However, if they had the 3D printer robot, they would just download my code and it would work tomorrow. So then they could do the experiments they need. So that's a research level idea. Take it to a next level, the local pharmacy, where you'll go to your doctor. Your doctor would work out what particular condition you have and the special drugs that you need would send prescription to a local pharmacy where they'd have this device and they would produce them for you and you'd go to the pharmacy and collect it. Then in years further, then it might get to the point where it's in your house and you then, like you say, have a prescription and you could then have license to have access to that molecule. And so this then changes the game and ensures that people have access to high quality, diverse number of different molecules. The other thing is if you're a patient that has many ailments, you've got to remember what order to take your pills or you need a particular formulation for the day. Maybe we can think of a system that would actually mix the ingredients you need for that particular day or time so you're not confused and take the wrong pills. 
Glasgow and thankfully still UK-based chemist Lee Cronin. And finally, looking at the lighter side of 3D printing, Cambridge-based company Dovetailed have developed a process to print fruit, including fruits that don't even exist, like the honeyberry. We sent Georgia Mills along to try some with Dovetail founder Viva Kalnikata and chief inventor Gabriel Villar. The way it works, it, it prints individual little liquids and encapsulates it in thin gel membrane. And you can control every single droplet for texture, for flavor, for color. And you can build really intricate and interesting structures with it. Right. So what sort of things have you been using this for? So we've been printing very successfully raspberries. But we've been, more interestingly, we've been inventing new fruit that don't exist in nature yet. So we've been printing honeyberries, a popular dessert called strawberries and cream. So instead of having strawberries and cream separately, we printed it in a one-shaped berry that has a strip of cream running across. Is one of you secretly Willy Wonka? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. We um, wanted to watch it again because um, if I've ever remembered this quote from Willy Wonka saying that uh, he's showing off his factory and he says, you know, the blueberries taste like blueberries and the snozberries taste like snozberries. And this is the first time that you can actually make a snozberry. And Have you made a snozberry? Um, we've made some weird ones. I, I don't think we've made a snozberry yet. Uh, we've made some rum and coconut berries and uh, all sorts of other interesting things. They sound delicious. So can we get making one? Yeah, we've put some fruit juice into this machine. And now we're going to select what shape to turn it into. Uh, here we've got some simple pre-programmed shapes. Uh, I'm going to choose the little raspberry shape here. This sort of looks a little bit like an inkjet printer, but it's over this small cup of water, and it's dropping these little drops of red into it, which seem to be sinking and forming a shape very much like a raspberry is starting to appear. How long does each fruit take? It depends on the size. Uh, these little raspberries take um, something like five to ten minutes. We're being quite careful and slow here, so the fastest we've been able to print these fruits is about a minute. So if you think to yourself, I know a flavour that's going to be really great, banana and rhubarb maybe, and you say to yourself, I want to try that, so you can just put the juice in one end, build this fruit with both flavours, and then eat it. Is that all there is to it? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, there's a little bit of magic that, that goes into it, of course. What's great is you can use pretty much anything you like, um, these organic fruit juices or things that aren't juice at all, like honey, cream and yogurts and so forth. And does it need to be in water? Uh, this cup of water that the droplets fall into is a temporary printing medium. So the printing has to take place in there um, for this gel membrane to form around each droplet. But at the end of the printing process, we fish the berry out of the solution and uh, it stands up by itself. Okay, so we're just fishing out the finished product. It looks like a sort of very gooey, half-melted raspberry at the moment. <laughs> What's nice is that you can tune the consistency of these things so you can make the resulting object quite uh, flimsy and almost like a jelly, so that as soon as you pop it in your mouth, it kind of dissolves. Or you can make the droplets fairly strong so that they have a more crunchy texture. So okay, okay, I'm going to try my first ever 3D-printed raspberry. Mm, that's, um, that reminds me a bit of um, school jelly, actually. Yeah. <laughs> In this case, we're using some uh, artificial uh, flavorings. So I think that's why, for a lot of people, it's reminiscent of uh, things like gummy bears and jellies, because they use the same flavorings. We've been looking to work with chefs around Cambridge to help us develop a bit more interesting flavors, but they can be incredibly flavorsome. You can really pack it with interesting flavors. I was going to ask about applications for this. We were thinking potentially children because it makes it really appealing and really looks really kind of nice. And we noticed that children really like to try them. Uh, we're also thinking potentially older people, kind of having problems with chewing. Athletes, potentially, because we can really make it super nutritious. And it's very convenient. We're hoping that students potentially will like it because they could have a, a healthy lifestyle uh, with the convenience of not having to go to supermarket every kind of two days and buy fresh fruit. This reminds me of the chapter in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory where there's this, uh, there's a sweet, I think it might be chewing gum, where they taste it. And it tastes like a three-course meal. Can you get berries to taste of different things? They have layers in. You're not limited to using sweet things. So you can use uh, a layer of uh, fruit juice and then a layer of uh, potato puree or uh, soup or whatever you like. So that's where the chefs really come into uh, because there's all this freedom. Does this go beyond the kitchen ever? Yes, uh, we're looking to apply it in... Um also medicine, and maybe even um, cosmetics. We've been looking to potentially personalize cosmetics and make it more interesting in terms of uh, how it's delivered and how people are actually mixing it and how people people applying it. Uh, in medicine, um, it has application for printing tissue. 
So yeah, it, it has wide application beyond kitchen. Well, for a start, it sounds three delicious. That was Georgia Mills talking to Viva Kaunakaita and Chief Inventor Gabriel Villar at Dovetailed. Just time to squeeze in a quick tweet from Ed Wilson, who says, the hackers would break your drug printing machine, referring to Lee Cronin's idea, at the drop of a hat. Just imagine the profits. <laughs> well, thanks for that idea. And thanks to all our studio guests this week. That's Julia Greer, Michael Molinari and Tim Minchell. And finally, it's time for our question of the week now with Greer Jackson, who's been tackling the sticky subject of how to keep your glass clean. This week, we've been busy scrubbing up for an answer to this question sent in from Nikki Way in Salisbury. How is self-cleaning glass made? Keeping our windows free of dirt and grime can be a tiresome job. Putting on your grubbiest gear, carefully climbing up, wobbling ladders, all the while trying to balance a bucket and sponge without falling off. But this may be a thing of the past, as something called self-cleaning glass has been developed, which could mean your windows will sparkle all day long. But how does it work? We spoke to Ulrich Steiner, a professor of soft matter physics at the Adolf Merkel Institute in Switzerland, to talk about the two ways in which glass can clean itself. There are two types of self-cleaning glass. The most common one makes use of titanium dioxide nanoparticles that are put on top of the glass surface. They are roughly 10 to 25 nanometers in diameter. So to put that into perspective, that's a layer around a thousand times thinner than a human hair. The organic dirt that settles on these surfaces is broken down by UV light with the help of these particles. In this way, the sun effectively burns away the dirt, but since UV light is required, this works best outdoors. So the UV, the light and sunshine, with the help of this layer of nanoparticles, breaks down any pieces of dirt on the window. This could be used for hard-to-access windows, which get a lot of sunshine, like the ones in skyscrapers. Now, what about this other method? The second effect uses nano-surface roughness together with an applied substance that strongly repels water. The resulting surface is superhydrophobic. It nearly repels any substance that it comes into contact with. Any type of dirt is easily removed by simply rinsing the surface with water, for example in a rain shower. This surface is not self-cleaning since it requires water and should therefore rather be termed easy clean surface. So water-hating surfaces mean easy to clean windows as the water picks up all the pieces of dirt and is repelled by the glass, meaning a simple hose might be all you need to do that dreaded window wash. Thanks Ulrich for cleaning that up. Next week, we're finding out the answer to this question sent in from Colin in South Africa. I'm reading Desmond Morris's new book called War, What Is It Good For? He says that 10 billion lives were lived in the 20th century. Well, I want to know, how many people have ever lived since Homo sapiens evolved? And secondly, how would one calculate this number? What do you think? Greg Jackson, and as we've heard on the programme, the population may be closer to 12 billion than 9 billion by the end of the century, which already seem pretty sizeable. but try to imagine how many Homo sapiens or people have ever lived. If you have a perspective or an answer to Colin's question, then please email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook, of course, too, or you can tweet at Naked Scientist. There's also a discussion forum on our website, nakedscientist.com slash forum, where we're discussing all of these issues. That's it for this week. Thank you very much to Georgia Mills for production. We're back next time with a look at how on earth life got started and where it came from. Do send in your astrobiological inquiries to us in the meantime. Thanks very much for listening. My name's Chris Smith. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and the STFC. I'm Chris Smith and until next time, goodbye.